Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Panic Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison, and with me today are David Emmett of modomatters.com and also Scott Jones of PhotoGP, that is www.photo.gp. And today's episode is going to be about the Grand Prix of the Czech Republic at Brno. It was uh, a historic day in many respects, especially if you're a, if you're a Brit and you're a fan of British motorcycle racing. Uh, it was quite quite the event. David, you have thankfully changed out of your dirndl <laughs> after the last episode. You were wearing it throughout the week uh, in the Czech Republic, but I see now you've just you've resorted back to shorts and t-shirt. Um, how was uh, how was the Czech Republic, the Grand Prix of the Czech Republic for you? Uh, the Grand Prix of the Czech Republic was um, fascinating, mainly. Um, the first ever wet race there, so it wasn't just um, a good race for the uh, fans of British riders, but also a good race for fans of rain. Um, I'm sure there are some. Uh, it was the, the, the strangely enough, it was the first ever wet race we've ever had at, uh, at Bruneau. We've had wet races at other other places. We've had wet practice at uh, Bruneau as well, but it never Isn't actually it? Uh, it never actually seemed to rain on uh, during during the uh, the Grand Prix race since night. When have we, when did we go back there? 1987? 87 was the first time, yeah. And, and you're talking about the Premier Class, right? I yeah. think we've had wet 125, 250 races in the past, but but never in the 500 or, or MotoGP class. Yeah, exactly. And as such, it turned into unexplored territory because um, nobody really... I mean, we already have a brand new tyre supplier for nine, uh, for for 2016, with Michelin coming back and replacing um, uh, our good friends Bridgestone, they haven't had a great deal of time in the wet. Although obviously they test their uh, wet tires as much as possible on test tracks with test riders, but they don't have any real race data because you need to have wet races um we've had a few of them but it's it takes a long time to actually build up a, bullet, a body of knowledge so it was it was very interesting to see what to do and it turned out with the changing weather to into uh, well to become a a bit of a gamble a bit of a lottery it was it was you had to estimate what the commissions were what the conditions were going to do and go with the choose the right choose the right tire um and that proved to be extremely difficult because it was raining very very, very heavily in the morning um everyone was testing was re- uh, testing the the soft wet tires um uh, during warm-up they were those soft wet tires were actually right on the limit there were a few riders said that they they didn't actually have very much grip with those um then it rained throughout the motor three race main th- rain throughout the motor two race and it stopped raining i suppose shortly after the motor two finished because we were uh myself and you neil were walking back from speaking to danny kent and uh, we remained completely dry unlike when we went down to talk to brad binder um, earlier in the day yeah absolutely i mean scott you were you were out obviously shooting the, the motor gp race how were how were conditions from what you could see um was there any time during the race where it looked to be drying up um or were there any parts of the track in particular you were at which which were a lot uh, a lot wetter and more treacherous than others uh there it definitely looked like it was drying up toward the end in fact you know david referenced a minute ago that there must be some people who are fans of wet races i confessed to being one of those i know that's not a popular uh, stance in, among the MotoGP fans but i really enjoy wet races mainly i guess because i look at a race from a photographer's perspective first and a fan's perspective second so i love a wet race because the pictures are 
so interesting. You see all sorts of things that you don't see in the dry, but also for the results that we get. Um, I think this race is a perfect example that something amazing can happen. Um, you know, if it's a dry race, you know pretty much who's going to win um, among a, a small number of riders. But when the track is wet, you don't know what's going to happen. You get get an amazing result like this. So to address your question while we were out at trackside, I happened to be on the back of a scooter again. And that was something that I was watching very carefully for because it never started to rain again. Watching on the TV as we circulated around the track to see if the dry line was emerging uh, because if it did, we were going to race back to try to photograph bike swap. That didn't seem to be happening fast enough to worry about that, so it wasn't until four or five laps to go that we gave up our shooting out on the track and went back to the pit lane. Scott, w- one question. Uh, did it at any point look like it might start raining again? Uh, there was, I think, one time when we got a little bit of sprinkle, and I got all my hopes up that it would start raining again in earnest, but that was only for a very short time then it stopped again exactly because there seemed to be basically three groups of riders on the grid there were uh, the people who thought that it would the, the track would remain more or less as it was or dry up a little bit um and they went out on the hard wets there were the people who thought that um it was going to start raining really really heavily um uh, about 30 minutes into the race so they went out on the soft wets uh, um thinking the tires would come to them once that once it started raining again and then there was a third group who thought that the the track would dry really really quickly and so they went out on soft wets thinking well you know 10 laps in we'll be coming into to to swap swap onto slicks anyway um so there's no point worrying about about the tires and that i think made for uh, three different strategies and only one of them really worked out well i could see how that might happen because as you know this circuit is so big from one end to the other you could almost have three different weather systems on it going on at the same time. So I, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that. I mean, just talking about the race. So we, we basically, we had uh, we had three riders, uh, Crutchlow, Rabat, and Baz, choosing the, the hard front and the hard rear option. And then we had other riders like the, the factory Yamahas. Um, we also had Eugene Laverty, I think, using the soft front and the hard rear. And then I think the majority of the field were on the soft-soft combination. Um, so really, it was the race was just about, you know, how... Those, those groups of people were on their tires and how they were basically managing their races. Um, you know, it, it was uh, it was a fascinating kind of, uh, you know, it was fascinating just to watch the strategies that were going on and how each rider approached it. Yeah, exactly. And the what was really interesting was seeing, I mean, it was one of those races where you're actually watching the timesheets more than you're actually watching the action on track because um, I suppose one of the downsides to a wet race is that you don't see really tough and hard overtakes because the overtakes um, the, the the tires make overtaking a lot more a lot easier um, because generally someone's tires are working a lot better than someone else's uh, so, you know so so you, you don't have to really put it risk life and limb to get past one uh, past someone you can just get past just fairly easily bide your time go through and then uh, go, go and take them but when you're watching the timesheets you're seeing uh, a real differential in in lap times and i remember um 
seeing, uh, I forget, it must have been maybe lap seven or lap eight when all of a sudden Cal Crutchlow was the fastest man on on track. Valentina Rossi suddenly picked up a lot of speed and started coming through. They'd been coming through from a long, from a long way back. They were way down, I think, in 10th or 11th. Yeah, I think Crutchlow was uh, 15th at the end of the first lap. Yeah, exa- exactly. And then uh, they were really just, they were struggling, struggling to get around, struggling to... Uh, get any kind of heat into the tyres, just waiting for the track to to dry up and the conditions to to, to come to them, um, and that was what made it so interesting. Once they actually once they actually got going, yeah, exactly. And that their kind of strategy was was contrasted to the Ducatis at the front. Um, in the first, I think maybe ten laps, we saw you know the top three were Ianoni, Dovizioso, and Redding. And although they well, Redding said that. You know, he wasn't pushing that hard. He just felt very comfortable sat there in second. Clearly, they're, they were using, they were at the front, they were setting the pace and they were using up, you know, the soft front a little bit more than uh, than those that were behind them. And that then led to quite a spectacular um, chunking of the front tire. Um, anyone that uh, anyone that has this Twitter or, or, you know, has access to the internet, they should definitely try and look for a photo of Andre Inone's front tire uh, at the end of the race. It was quite spectacular to think that he even managed to, to finish the race with the tire in such condition. Yeah, I mean, it, what was remarkable was the fact that he was he did, uh, I think, a 2.15 and a 2.16 as his two last laps, which is basically five or six seconds off the pace. Um, but this was on a tire with, uh, a, I don't know, perhaps two-thirds, three-quarters of the tread missing on the, on the front, and he's still managing to go around uh, faster than an awful lot of people would ever be able to manage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Scott Redden also had the, the well, the Vizioso basically said he, he felt unsafe and he pulled in. Um, you know, that, that, that essentially ended his race. Uh, Redding, I think, his started to chunk really badly with a couple of laps left and he braved it out, thought that it was worth riding around trying to get a point, which I think he, he, he did in the end. Um, but from the sound of it, it was quite scary. Um, you know, was this was this a case of Michelin messing up badly, David? Do you think they're to blame? Should we be seeing things like this happening in a in a MotoGP race? Um, no, I don't think Michelin are to blame. I think it is. It was just race strategy. I think um, uh, there is some criti- room for criticising Michelin. I think the criticism is that, uh, in fact, exactly what uh, Andrea Dovizioso said after the race, which was that you either had a very, very soft wet or you had a very hard wet. Um, uh, a lot of riders avoided the hard wet because that was the tyre that they'd crashed on in Assen. And even though uh, Michelin had bought a new or a different, a slightly revised compound of the, of the hard wet to Saxonry, they were still a little bit leery of it they were a little bit worried that uh, that, that it it wouldn't be able to cope Um, they had tried the soft wet the soft seemed almost too hard uh, in morning warm up that made it uh, confusing Uh, but I mean the the way that a tyre that a wet tyre is supposed to work is it has to try and generate heat quickly or, or a very soft wet what you want is for it to generate a lot of heat quickly, um, and that heat is then dissipated by the amount of water which is on the track. Um, the trouble is, on a drying track, you need to carefully, very, very carefully manage your tyres to get to the end. Otherwise, you do start losing uh, big chunks of the tread. And we saw, you know, Mark Marcus managed it. Hector Barbara managed it. Um, it was it was the riders who actually 
um, consciously looked after their tyres, who went seeking out water to try and cool their tyres, who actually managed to make it home on the uh, on the soft wets and the hard wet. I mean, you know, there was there were the Michelin bought one tyre which was absolutely perfect for the for the uh, for the conditions, uh, as Cal Crutchlow proved, um, because he basically bided his time through the first laps when it was still a, a little bit too damp for the uh, for the hard wets, and then totally blew people away for for the rest of the race yeah yeah it was it was very impressive um scott redding said that the the hard front was actually harder than um the hard tire at Aston that they were using on the saturday when everyone was throwing it down the road um and then as you say the soft was very soft but yeah for for Critzlow to to you know have the balls to to choose that hard hard combination um you know loris baz afterwards said that basically it was out of necessity because of his weight and his height uh, he finds that he uses up the soft tires the soft wet tires just you know more you know a quicker rate than other riders um so for crutchlow to use the hard i thought was uh, was was incredibly brave um and and really it was uh, it was a decision that, that essentially won him the race yeah i mean absolutely it was it was the the right decision it was also the decision which uh, crutchlow talked about a little bit afterwards it was really the decision which he which he wanted to take in um uh, which he thought we would pay off uh, at the saxon ring but it never really it never quite uh, came through for him uh, he didn't pit at the right time um it was just about it was just about managing the conditions but he managed the conditions from the very start of the race perfectly didn't lose too much time unlike eugene laverty complained uh, at the end um, also loris baz they said they lost too much time at the start of the race uh, and it was those the the four or five seconds which they lost in the opening laps which meant they didn't quite make it onto the podium um cal crutchlow uh, picked his position managed the tires in the uh, uh, in the early in the early laps and then as soon as the there was enough of a dry line he could actually uh, use the use Use the tires, generate the heat, and and disappear. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was very impressive. I think the the experience in Aston, um, in the first race, uh, the first part of the race in Aston, and then also in the section ring, you know, really helped Crutchlow because he obviously chose I think the harder tire in, in Saxon Ring. Um and there he had to he had to basically do a similar strategy. He had to bide his time, he had to hold his breath and not do anything too stupid in the opening laps. And then he had to make his way through the field and work his way through the field and just wait for the tire to come up to speed. Um and you know he he did that expertly. Um one thing that you know I thought was quite incredible was watching Cal in the in the closing laps, um, especially when he was approaching the leaders. It just looked so easy. It looked so effortless. Um, you know, and it's been it's very rare. It's occasionally you see, you know, one of the top four guys in the championship doing things like that, making it look like it's just a little sort of Sunday stroll. Um but were you getting any impression of that out in the track, Scott, when you were when you were shooting, um, you know, in the closing laps, uh when Crutzler was approaching the leaders, overtaking them and then riding off into the distance? Yeah, we'd been watching that for laps. You know, David said that when you're sitting in the media center and watching you're getting you're mainly getting the impression from the lap times and you don't see these you know, hard passes. Um, but one of the things that you do see in a situation like this is a rider coming from the back of the field and each time they come around, you know, the little set of riders that he's close to, he's closer to them than he was the last lap. As we're going around photographing the race, sometimes we can see a big TV screen and get an idea of 
what's been going on, but much of the time we can't. The, the TV screens aren't so common that, you know, we can really follow as we're moving around. So often as we're follow, trying to follow the story of the race, we're just relying on the part of it that we see when the writers come around. You know, I've said before that watching a race from trackside is kind of like reading a novel, but reading every 10th page. There's a lot of <laughs> stuff, story in between that you don't notice. So when you get to read that 10th page, it was really uh, exciting to see Cal being so much faster and, and you know, closing the gap on the riders that were in front of him. Then he'd come around, he'd be in front of those riders, and he'd start closing the gap to the riders, you know, that were farther up the track. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, that's just a normal way you uh, you read a novel, right? Every kind of page. <laughs> that's my speed reading. <laughs> you learned that at university. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, I uh, was speaking to, to Carl's crew chief uh, after the race, Christophe Bourguignon, um, and he was, I was kind of asking him, you know, what makes Carl so, so good in these situations? And, you know, he said that um, basically he just, he has an ability to, to kind of feather the throttle to nurse a, a rear tire in, in conditions where, you know, you can potentially burn it out very quickly. Um, and he said, like, looking at the data after the race, Carl's throttle control was absolutely immaculate. Um, he was managing the key in a lot of time in the exit of turns. Um, and this was without burning up the tire. Now, obviously, you know, having the harder compound in, I think would have helped that. But he was seeing a difference of three, four kilometers on corner exit between uh, the, the, the Repsol bikes of, of Pedroza and Marquez. So I think, you know, part of that also, you know, is down to down to the tire that he picked. But also just Cal's ability to, to be very, very gentle and very precise with the throttle when he needed to. Yeah, I think that's the key to where, where the riding is precision and care and accuracy and just uh, babying the bike. It's being able to baby the bike. I think what you see, you can go very, very fast if you are very aggressive all the time. Um but that will really come back and bite you when when it's wet because you do end up just burning up the tires too much. You ask, you you're asking the the tire to do much more than it's capable of doing, and the electronics simply can't manage uh, the, the difference between what you want to do and what the bike uh, you know what the bike wants to do. So uh, what the tire wants to do. Um, absolutely precision. I think also, again, we have to um, uh, shout out to Mark Marcus and Hector Barbara, especially Hector Barbara, uh, for coming in, what, fifth? Um, fifth, off, yeah. Yeah, coming in fifth, uh, soft front, soft, uh, soft rear, and actually just managing the bike all of the time, managing the tyres all of the time seeking out water to cool the tires down taking lines because that was the one thing that you read that you did really notice on the uh, on the TV was that um, it seemed like riders were sort of going wide all the time taking really weird lines but it was basically just because what they were doing is you know looking for some water to try and yeah. uh, cool the tires down take some heat yeah. out because it, in the end I spoke to Nicolas Gobert on Monday but I spoke to him for quite a long time asking about the Michelin's Nicolas Goubert. Yes, Michelin's. Yeah, well, yes. Sorry, yes. So I spoke to Michelin's Nicolas Goubert um, uh, at the on on Monday. Quite a long time. Spoke to him uh, about tyres, about the, especially about the safety aspect. Was the was safety ever a, ever an issue? Even when uh, tyres were losing lots and lots of tread, and he said no. Then no, the the, the carcass itself is still thick enough to actually support it. You saw that with 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 Iannone. Um, he made it a long way. Uh, I mean, the, the bike felt awful. 
but the tire was never going to explode. Um, uh, he was still perfectly capable of riding. It's just that he wasn't capable of riding very fast. Uh, but he did say that the, the uh, temperature becomes very, very critical for the for the soft wets. And so, you know, the difference of maybe two or three degrees of tire temperature is the difference between the tire falling apart and the tire just staying together uh, to, to and lasting uh, to the to the end of the race. And that couple of degrees of uh, of tire temperature is exactly the kind of thing that you do with by seeking out water in between the, the parts where you can't uh, where you can't actually find that's interesting and I think it's worth pointing out that um, Eugene Leverty was saying that the, there is one big difference between the Saxon Ring and Brno the Saxon Ring is very much a one line track and you have to stick to that line otherwise you're just not going to go fast whereas Brno you know it's a very wide circuit a uh, very wide piece of tarmac you know and you look at those different S-bends and even in the dry there are different ways to approach it different lines to take so it was easier for riders to, to kind of uh, you know go out and cool their tyres on um you know, on the outside of like the, the narrow band of dry and tarmac. Um, but it was still nonetheless impressive that, uh, that Barbara and, and Marquez were able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I think Bruno, the, the, the difference in, in lines, the, which Eugene talks about, that is what also meant that the um, intermediate was never an op- was never an option. Uh, I think because uh, Bradley Smith suffered a suffered an issue, um, his tyres started chunking. He came in, swapped to intermediates, um, but was immediately twenty seconds slower on intermediates than he was on uh, on the wets. Just because there wasn't enough enough of a dry line, there were still patches of the of the track where it was absolutely soaking wet. Um, it, that the intermediates just will not were not working. So um, the hard wet was just absolutely the the um, was the right it was the right tire the right choice uh, fitted fitted the conditions perfectly and and the people who chose it had the easiest job of it all. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've kind of touched on Crutchlow. Um, David just mentioned Hector Barbara and Mark Marquez um, doing sterling jobs for nursing the soft soft combination around in the, the 22 lap race. Scott, was there anyone else in, in the race that stood out to you watching trackside or just in terms of how they were riding, how they were approaching the race? Well, um, I was really impressed with how Rossi, because he, Rossi fell back, where, to 11th or 12th or something yeah, I think in 11th. the beginning. And his ride, to me, was very similar to Crutchlow's in several ways. Just wasn't quite as amazing, but still a remarkable Right for the situation that he found himself in at the beginning of the race. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it was, uh, you know, it was, I guess it was a ride that you would expect of Rossi. Uh, very mature. He never got panicked. I think he said, um, you know, the opening laps were just a total disaster, and he was just thinking, "God, I have messed up royally." Um, but I think he said it was when Crutchlow came past him, um, and he saw how fast Crutchlow was going, and he thought, "Okay, uh, maybe there is hope yet." And then when he saw that when the laps ticked off, and he realized that certain guys weren't going to be able to pit, he thought, "Okay." Okay, I think this is going to be uh, this is going to be a good choice. Yeah, another interesting aspect of the people who uh, actually destroyed their front tires, especially the front tires. Um, we had Andrea Iannone, Andrea Divizioso, Scott Redding, uh, Jorge Lorenzo, all the riders who like the big wings. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that was something that when we asked Iannone post race whether that was a that was a contributing factor he kind of you know batted it away you know the suggestion is if we were all idiots for even asking the question um but i had the chance to speak to someone who uh basically you know has access to certain information um 
on a bike that may or may not use wings um <laughs> and and he was saying that it was ne- it was definitely a factor it was absolutely a factor um yeah I mean, I, wing- I, i've spoken to people about this as well and people who've actually say the day uh, who've actually seen the data where will tell you that there is a a noticeable difference in wheelie on the um, uh, between bikes with wings and the bikes without wings, um, uh, um, and the, the the difference that difference translates into the front wheel spending more time on the ground, more load being on the front uh, uh, on the front, um, and that's got to translate into more temperature or. Uh, needing the the front needing more careful nursing when conditions are not absolutely perfect because I mean the the thing is Rossi was on the podium and Jorge Lorenzo was seventeenth seventeenth yes yeah, yeah exactly after coming in um, I mean what happened to Lorenzo was quite bizarre everyone just thought oh no he's completely lost it in the rain but that was, lost head. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the case at all basically he came in um he was missing a stretch a, a strip of his um strip from his front tire from the center part of his front tire uh, but unfortunately when he rolled the bike up that center part was completely it w- was underneath at the bottom of the bike and so when the engineers looked down at it they, it looked like they were looking at a perfect front tire uh, he jumped on the bike with slicks, uh, did one lap and thought he was going to die, and then came back straight uh, straight back in again. Uh, by which time his mechanics had taken a little bit a little while to figure out that okay, we need to put new soft wets in there, put new soft wets in. And actually, once he had new soft wets in, he was really he was quite quick, but he's just lost so much time um, that he didn't have a chance of, of, of finishing anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it's at first you know it it did seem to look as though Lorenzo had just lost his head. Um, and he was just desperate, um, looking for, looking for some sort of opportunity to maybe go in and use slick tires whenever the track clearly wasn't uh, clearly wasn't dry enough for them. Um, but you know, I think thankfully uh, we all re- learned afterwards that it was it was a soft tire issue. Um, Lorenzo though was I thought was quite interesting because we saw in Aston he was nowhere. He was quite fortunate in the end to pick up tenth place in Saxon Ring. I think that was probably the worst race of his career. Uh, he finished fifteenth. Um, and here, okay, he was 17th, but there were signs that he was picking up his speed in the wet. Um, and, and he was actually finding, he was coming to some sort of understanding how the front Michelin wet works um, and what's needed um, to make it work. Um, so I think, you know, although he was outside the points and, you know, it's disastrous, utterly disastrous for his championship ambitions, um, he definitely seems to have learned some things that, you know, will be of help in future wet races. Yeah, absolutely. I think this could be the race which changed things around for Jorge Lorenzo's um, uh, few, basically his future with Michelin's in the rain because he, uh, um, Aston and the Saxon Ring were absolutely disastrous. They were just absolutely dire. Um, as, uh, Bruno looks like a much worse race. It looks like a worse result. But actually, if you look at the lap sheets, you look at the times that he was doing. He was he was really quite quick. He was you know picking it up. It was especially once he actually got the um, uh, once he once he got going again. Once he got back out on the on the bike again. And once also once he because he started the race with a hard rear as well. Once he got the hard rear going, uh, he was really he was really really motoring. So I think um, uh, I think. We 
may see a different uh, a different Jorge Lorenzo in the next wet race, but um, well, we we shall have to see. Yeah, exactly. Guys, when you when you were talking to him in the debrief, did you get any sense of increased confidence for? the next wet race from him? It, it, very much so, very much so. After Assen and the Saxon Ring, he was resigned. He was, um, quite honestly, he was quite ashamed. He was very, very honest about uh, that it was down to him and it was his problem. And he was unable to, he was unable to say why, really. Yeah. You know, he, that, you know that seemed to be thing, the thing that, uh, that really stood out. He couldn't quite explain why this happened. Yeah, exactly. But in uh, at Bruno, what stood out was the fact that he was... Uh, annoyed at the tyres um he was uh, well he i mean they, there were lots of negative emotions he was he was angry and and annoyed and irritated but they were exactly the kind of uh, negative emotions you associate with a rider who is really who 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 believes he could have been competitive so i think for me the big difference was this was the, this really was the race where lorenzo finally got his head around racing in the way on on these tires um and in the past wilco zielenberg has, has said to me it's not that um it's not that uh, lorenzo doesn't like the rain what he doesn't like is conditions which are very very difficult to judge and change uh, change a lot if if yeah. it's terrible rain um as long as the grip is consistent it doesn't have to be there there doesn't have to be any grip it just has to be consistent it's when it yeah. changes a lot which is which is uh, the, that's the bit which really does does his head in yeah and you think you look back at back through his career he's had some of his greatest rides in the rain i mean um okay mategi last year didn't quite turn out the way he would have wished um but before his his front tire really started fading he was you know head and shoulders above everyone else uh on the grid that day uh, i think you know looking back at le mans in his second championship year he was 15 he won the race by 15 seconds and that was you know an underwater race and he was just spectacularly good and consistent and impressive that day um so yeah so what wilco was saying i think is absolutely right dave you know it was interesting as well what he was saying on monday he had obviously had a bit more time to think about um to think about the wet tire and how you kind of functions how it's supposed to be used um and it was quite interesting because I spoke to wilco Zielenberg after the saxon ring and he was explaining lorenzo's dilemma and what lorenzo said on the monday at Brno after the the one day test there it was was pretty much identical to what wilco said he was just saying that you know the bridgestone although it was a harder tire um it wore a lot you know the consumption was was quite high and therefore with that wear you were able to judge the limit a lot easier um he said with the soft always seems to be it's so soft that it always seems to be moving the Michelin soft this is it always seems to be moving it always seems that it's going to give way so that's why he was so tentative in in Aston and Saxon ring whereas he said the harder you push you get the same feeling so you break later and it's still moving a lot like it like you know when you're not pushing that hard so he said okay so maybe the limit wasn't there it's a bit further away you know and you could see even as the race was going on he was just like oh well maybe I can actually push a little bit more and maybe maybe I can push a little bit more as well um and eventually that obviously that um you know that destroyed the front tire in the end so he hasn't quite found that balance of, of how hard you have to push and you know how hard you have to kind of not push um but it was interesting he was also saying that the you know the setup of his bike was you know it was there was far too much weight in the front i think he said in past races um so yeah so i think you know what you're saying is right dave he still hasn't quite found the actual balance but the chances of seeing a Jorge Lorenzo, you know, circulating in fifteenth uh, place, ten seconds slower than the race leader, as we did in Aston, um, you know, I think maybe we won't see anything quite as desperate as that in the future. 
so he hasn't got it figured out, but he's got it figured out for maybe 95% or so. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously, I mean, obviously, yeah, he, he didn't understand how much he could push it with the tyre remaining intact for the whole race. Yeah. Because, you know, if he, if he had it fully understood, he would have made that tyre last, you know. Um, but it's interesting you talk about that um, movement of the front tyre because that movement, uh, basically what's happening is the tread blocks, which are the, 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 the well, not the tread blocks, um, the uh, line, well, the, the tread is put on top of the carcass of the tyre and those tread blocks actually move around to generate heat and especially with the with, with the soft um, uh, with the soft michelin uh, with soft wet uh, they move around move around a lot so even when you're going quite slow they're sort of wobbling around and it doesn't feel it's it's not giving that that feeling of the tyre digging in and, and and carrying you around the corner which uh, which is what lorenzo seems to require to really go quickly uh, so i have to ask you guys uh, i hope you, d you don't get offended by this question but where were you in 1981 in august 1981 were you watching more bikes at that time uh where was i i was but you see in august 1981 um uh, hang on wait a minute i've got to figure out how old i was then uh <sighs> 17 i would have been seven i would have been coming up to my 17th birthday in, in that case don't tell us what you were doing because <laughs> <laughs> children listen to this show david <laughs> well yes some of them some of them may be mine um uh, unlikely <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely, but um, uh, anyway, where I was when I was seventeen, yes, I was watching motorbikes. But back then, you see, we didn't have live TV. What you used to have was occasionally you would see a motorbike on um, uh, on on Sunday night, or perhaps even on a Wednesday, several days afterwards. Um, also, in nineteen eighty one, I was living in Holland. We had um, even though the the uh, I mean, motorcycle racing was still quite big because there was uh, there was a few uh, top Dutch bike, uh, uh, top Dutch racers uh, at the time. Um, and on the podium that day, and the, uh, it, that she'd indeed won. Yeah. on the podium on the podium that day. Um, but uh, yeah, to be odd, to, I should be perfectly honest. I can't remember. Um, uh, I can't <laughs> remember whether I saw a TV footage of Barry Sheen's uh, victory in Anders Torp or not. Okay, well. What they said about the sixties is obviously the same about the eighties for David. You know, if if he could remember it, he wasn't having enough fun. Yeah, uh, Scott. What about you? Were you uh, were you well into bikes at that stage? Or were, you know, does does the kind of gravitas of this uh, this long drought for the UK um, kind of did it hit home for you as well? Uh, not in a historical sense. Back in nineteen eighty one, I was an avid Formula One fan. Uh, I'd be happy to talk about that on another podcast <laughs> than yeah. this one uh, but yeah. i wasn't take really that, tracking that story elsewhere uh, I mean. <laughs> grand prix motorcycle racing at that that time okay okay right fair enough um I, you know we, we have to talk about uh about you know we've mentioned crutchlow were a great race um but he finally broke that broke that spell that droid of 35 years uh during which no uh, no british racer has won in the premier class uh, you know i just kind of uh, speaking to one or two of the um, you know, the British journalists that have been about the paddock for a while on Sunday evening, you know, it just kind of struck me that, you know, I was thinking that those guys have been around for a long time, you know, even maybe from the early 90s or even late 80s, you know, and it's kind of crazy to think that even they had not, never seen, uh, never seen, you know, someone triumph in the Premier Class from from the UK or from Ireland. Um, and that just kind of that kind of brought home the thing that it was, uh, we really were watching something quite special on, on Sunday. Yeah, I think also it marks a little bit of the well i think changing of the guard is is 
putting it a little bit too strongly, but it does mark that they uh, that the MotoGP field is is getting a little bit more uh, international because we've had um, how many nationalities? I think we've had what four nationalities win uh, uh, win so far this the, this season with yeah. Jack Miller. Um, sure. uh, we've had an Australian win. We've had a British win. Um, they've for a long time. All we saw was uh, Spaniards, Italians, and an Australian. Or, well, not Australians, but Anna. Well, no, that's not true. Chris Frimbulin won as well, um, and an American, <laughs> <laughs> and an American twice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, it seemed like the, the the window of nationalities was 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 getting a little bit narrower, but now it's getting a little bit wider again. You see this especially in Moto Two and Moto Three, where the field is much more rich uh, in terms of nationalities and again no doubt we should talk about that uh, a, l- a little bit later on um but yeah i mean it, I, I think it's a sign that that there are really is the, the eras of dominate uh, you know dominance uh, the eras always change anyway once upon a time it was all brits uh, then it was all americans um then it was all italians then it was all spaniards now it seems to be a little bit more uh, mixed up which is good i guess looking at the championship um a disastrous day in some respects for for Lorenzo and um, losing 16 points to Marquez just when he seemed to have some momentum back in his sails after uh, Austria. Um, Rossi now was leapfrogged his teammate. He sits second. He's 53 points behind Marquez. Is this championship still alive in your eyes, David? Uh, well, it does if um, Mark Marquez falls off, but um, so far he's been conspicuously bad at falling off, which is uh, a remarkable transformation. Um, I think. I mean, if there's a year where it would be possible for someone to come back from a 53-point deficit after with, with, with seven races to go, then it would be this year because there have been so... Uh, there have been so many weird, just weird things happen, which is what you get when you change rules, which is what is good about changing rules, really. The But realistically, in any other year, the the, the championship would basically be over um, uh, unless Marquez managed to fall, manages to fall off and, and break his uh, break a major limb. And you nobody wants to see that. That's not the way that you're supposed to win or lose a championship. Sure, but it's happened before. Scott, what about you? Do you think, uh, do you think Marquez has got the sewn up or, or uh, you know, I, I asked this because um, in the press conference on Sunday, um, I think it was a local journalist asked Valentino Rossi whether he could see himself overturning this, uh, this 53 point disadvantage. And Rossi, I just thought was just fantastic. You know, he, he just said, oh, no, definitely not. I think it's, it's over. You know, <laughs> Marquez has done, has wrote so, has written so well this year. And there's no way that he's going to give away those many points because he's writing so well. And I've made some mistakes and had some bad luck. I thought that was, that was quite brilliant because he was basically just saying, okay, lad, there's all the pressure. I'm going to put it in your shoulders and let's see how you deal with it. Um, you know, I thought that was, it was a really smart move. You know, what's your kind of take on it? How to how to say one thing and mean something else? Yeah. By Valentino Rossi. Um, I don't think. I mean, if I were Marquez, I would not figure that I had this in the bag. You know, you you say, David, if if Marquez falls off, Rossi could be right back in there. Well, this is MoGP. I mean, it only takes the the level that these guys ride at. It makes one. It takes one tiny little mistake, and you're on the gravel. If you don't land in a lucky way where you can get the bike going again and get back on track and salvage some points, I mean, it's pretty easy for that to happen to anybody, even to Marquez, who's showing a remarkable level of 
maturity and awareness of really wanting to win the championship this year rather than focusing on winning it by winning as many races as he possibly can. So I think it's still good. It's, it's not in the bag for him at all, in my opinion. I think we can see the risk of what's uh, of what Marquez faces from what happened to Bradley Smith today, Oshersleben, where he was uh, sitting in and uh, taking part, or well, during practice for the um, uh, is it an eight-hour race there for for, for the Endurance mm. World Championship? Um, he'd been asked to uh, you know help the Yamaha, the Yacht team, uh, try and win the championship. Um, uh, he fell off it looked like he'd broken his femur it looks now like he just has a really really deep cut um but if he had broken his femur uh we have silverstone in just over a week's time a week after that we have misano and then two weeks later it's uh it's aragon. it's aragon it's a really really busy and then two weeks after that it's or no it's three weeks after that i think there are three races three races in a row it's really easy if you do fall off and injure yourself to lose an awful lot of points, um, it really, it, it, it's a very, very dangerous point to the championship, uh, I think, at the moment. Yeah. And just because Marquez is showing this remarkable maturity and awareness of the championship, remember that almost crash he had in the final turn just this past weekend? I mean, that was a remarkable save that he made that could very easily have gone a totally different direction. Yeah, right. exactly. I mean, it still could happen to him. As you said, no one wants that to happen. I certainly hope it doesn't happen. I hope everybody battles in perfect health and head-to-head and is just good racing to settle the championship. But that kind of thing, every time they go out on track, there's the possibility of that happening to any rider, even the one leading the championship by 53 points. Exactly. And it's something that Lorenzo's been saying all year. He's been saying that Mark is riding absolutely magnificently, but he's riding with a hell of a lot of risk. And... He always seems to do these things in free practice. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as if he's pushing the boundaries as much as possible um, when he knows that, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world if he, you know, loses the front and falls out of it. Um, but but this kind of approach, though. You can you know, still it, fall off and hurt yourself badly sure. during for, during free practice. You know, if he falls off and breaks a collarbone or a, a bone in his wrist or uh, an ankle, something like that, uh, you know, if, if he if he falls off on the, on the Saturday and uh, he falls off on Saturday at, uh, at Silverstone, um, and can't race in, uh, can't race at Silverstone on the Sunday. The, there's a very good chance he wouldn't also be able to char- to, to race in uh, uh, to race in Misano, and, and all of a sudden that's fifty points that he's um, uh, that he's potentially giving away. Sure, absolutely. I think it's you know we, we've kind of mentioned about how how well Marquez rode on Sunday with the soft tires, but I just think it's worth pointing out that you know in the kind of three wet races we've had in the last four races in, since Aston, you know Marquez has scored a first, second, and a third. Rossi has crashed out of one, had an eighth, and then a second, and Lorenzo has had one tenth and one fifteenth, and then the se- the seventeenth obviously in Brno. So the, the, it's basically these three races. I think at the end of the year we're going to look back at these three races of what swung the the, the sort of the, pendu- the pendulum of, of momentum in the championship because leaving Barcelona, I think you probably would have said you know your money was on maybe okay Lorenzo had a bad day that day, but you know the the has did look in really good shape. And it made me think, you know, had those races been dry, you know, we probably would be, we, well, we definitely would be looking at a very different championship now. And if there is an, an absence of wet races in the final seven, you know, maybe the Yamahas can, uh, I mean, we know it's a great bike, 
I think they can they can claw back some ground, but um, but it's 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 definitely a long shot. So what you're saying is that basically the El Nino effect has won Mark Marcus the the the, <laughs> the, the, the title this year. It's contributed to it, but then I should also state that I think you know I'm not saying that luck has played, you know, the, you know I think circumstances definitely played in his favour. But at the same time, those are three opportunities where, as the championship leader, he feels the most pressure, you know, and he has the most to lose, and he's uh, handled the situation with immense uh, maturity and you know ability to deal with whatever's thrown at him. You know, it's- I think luck is a good word because um, uh, the difference between luck and circumstances is is one of perspective. I mean, you know, circumstances work out one way, and um, you either find yourself on the right side or the wrong side. I still think that uh, to a large extent, the Yamahas have managed to lose this championship rather than Marquez win it. I mean, without taking any, anything away from Marquez, Marquez has rode absolutely brilliantly all year. Um, he's managed a bike which is not particularly great. Um, he has uh, handled himself with great aplomb. He's managed to settle for lesser positions when his natural instinct is to try and win. But look at Rossi. I mean, uh, Rossi basically threw away two very good point scoring positions in Argentina and uh, Austin Austin oh yeah sorry Austin um Austin and um Assen all the A's um he uh, he obviously Mugello, there was nothing he could do about that that's that's just down to that's just down to Yamaha simple as that um but you know put in maybe I don't know somewhere between 30 and 40 points which he might have scored uh, uh, w- with those two races, and all of a sudden, it's not a fifty. Was it fifty-three points? It's thirteen, fifteen, twenty. That's a completely open championship. So I think it's 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 not so much that um, uh, Marquez has been lucky. I think it's more that the Yamahas managed to trip themselves up despite having the best bike on the grid. I would go along with that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, okay, so time for an advertisement break. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, and then we're going to come back with Moto2 and Moto3, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. Okay, so at this point Jensen comes in with his little uh, his little interlude. Oh, I love to think All about that. the worst song. Facebook and Twitter. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and iTunes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Leave a rating on iTunes. Yes, leave us a rating on iTunes. Yeah. Okay, so welcome back. Um, now, before we go on to the smaller classes, uh, there were some very interesting results thrown up in both uh, the Moto2 and Moto3 races. Well, Scott, you wanted to say something about uh, about Cal and about LCR. Yeah, you know, you were talking earlier about the historical perspective of this race being the first British win since Barry Sheen. But for me, I didn't feel that as much. What I really felt was just a personal um, achievement for Cal, whom I've watched in World Supersport and World Superbike, and I know he's a really, really good motorcycle racer who goes out there and tries as hard as he can to go fast every time he's on the bike. And the fact that he was able to win a race um, was really a special moment. I'm really glad to have been there. And for me, he he's sort of uh, you know stood on the podium for lots of racers who are similar in the way that 
they're really, really good motorcycle racers, but things just haven't quite worked out for them. Uh, you know, they've never had that given day when it was their turn to win a race. Um, and also, you know, not just Cal, but the fact that LCR Honda got their first win as a team, um, that was just like a double whammy of accomplishment for kind of some underdogs uh, in the MoGP paddock who show up every weekend, try 100%. It's great to see them reach their goal. Yeah, and I think one of the the kind of most memorable images from from the whole weekend was uh, was in that was you know images from those final laps whenever we saw Lucio Cecchinello on the pit wall just staring at the ground and you know begging Cal to slow down and to take it easy and not throw it away. Um, I spoke to Lucio after the race and he said that you know somewhere in the back of his in the depths of his memory just he was thinking of Australia 2014 where you know that dodgy front tire uh, you know caused Cal to crash out of a, a certain podium place with uh, just one or two laps to go um, but uh, but yeah I think um, Lucio is definitely a guy that you know we, we can see that from the fairing of that bike that he's in a continual battle to fight um, you know for funding uh, to make it to make it possible for for his team to continue um, he was saying after the race that you know us uh, journalists could have no idea the amount of appointments and early mornings and airplanes that he's taken to you know to ensure that you know he's could find the sponsors to get the the team to where it is now um so you know i think it was definitely great not only for cal but to see uh to see to see lucio finally get some success in MotoGP after you know ha- coming fairly close i think with with uh De Punier and uh, and stoner in the past um yeah i have a little story about that Lee, uh neil if you'd like me to share it with you yeah sure sure um a little behind the scenes from the photographer's perspective with a couple laps to go we um went back to pit lane and like okay there's four, three laps to go. What am I going to do here in pit lane? And I happen to be right next to the LCR Honda, you know, that little shed that they have where they have the monitors for the guys who hold the rider signs out. And there was an empty gap in the fence there. So I walked up to it, switched to a wider lens and poked through and I was going to stay there until the checkered flag and my picture for the end of the race was going to be the checkered flag waving on the left and Cal crossing the finish line on the right. And as Cal came around to take the three laps to go, um, I was, you know, in that spot holding it so that no one else would come in and, and take it away. And two strong hands grabbed me by the shoulders and yanked me back and pushed me off to the side. And as I turned around to say, what the hell just happened? It was Lucio. He said, sorry, sorry. And he leaned through to give Cal the, you know, <laughs> palms to the ground. Calm down. Take it easy. Take it easy. <laughs> and... I didn't realize, you know, I was just in photography mode. I think, okay, what am I, I going to get out of the last couple of laps of this race? How can I get good pictures for this? And I didn't even think, like, okay, Lucci is on the brink of winning his first race as a team. Um, so that was, to me, kind of a kind of a funny situation I found myself in of just being so <laughs> clueless of what was going on and right next to me is those guys you know Oscar they're all the, the LCR guys were there on the thing and they were biting their nails and and just shaking with the suspense of what was going to happen yeah I mean we all thought that Lucio was would would not actually get to see his first MotoGP victory because we were fairly convinced that he was going to have a brain aneurysm with about a lap to go <laughs> and d- collapse and die on the spot he was that uh, uh, animated um, but uh, it is it's really great to see LCR actually get get a win. Um, I have 
sort of, I mean, I've followed them, I've spoken to them. I've spoken to Lucio a fair amount about the financial struggles of trying to put a team together. Um, they've had some bad luck, some bad decisions, I think also a little bit with CWM getting involved in what was obviously a... Uh, shall we say an unusual financial construct um, but uh, they've also I mean I know how hard uh, Lucio works at trying to get money together um, he, it was he who brought Casey Stoner into MotoGP in, uh, and when it looked like he was finally going to be rewarded for that decision um, Stoner was stolen stolen away by Ducati and went on to become world champion and, and, and win a lot of races the next year. So, yeah, LCR, they've been so close for so long that um, it, it is really very satisfying to actually uh, see them. And I, and I also, I really like your point, Scott, about um, Cal standing for all of those races who never quite make it. I mean, Colin Edwards immediately comes to mind because Colin came within basically within a corner of winning his first uh, first ever MotoGP race and then just gassed it up a little bit too early, ran onto the AstroTurf and gassed it up a little bit too much and it all went horribly wrong. So, but you, you felt, I mean, you, you were always waiting for Colin Edwards to actually win a race and he never quite managed it. And so you really felt that uh, that, that, that Cal was there for uh, all of those guys, for Colin and everyone else like Colin, who were, you know, the, the nearly men of MotoGP. Yeah, I think you could definitely tell that you have sought a lawyer's advice on how to word anything that uh, is to do with uh, CWM, David, <laughs> the way you the way you phrased that. Uh, but no, it's interesting you talk about Colin Edwards. You know, just a, a bit of a fact that I think um, was in one of uh, Martin Rains's uh, press releases uh, after the German Grand Prix, and it was that um, you know Cal. I think after Germany, after his second place there, he was. Um, he was the the second most successful racer in terms of podiums, premier class podiums, to not have won a race. I think he had he had drawn level with or overtaken Graham Crosby on ten, uh, and Colin Edwards is the only person that has more, um, and he had twelve podiums without a win. So yeah, so and speaking to several people or speaking to some people after uh, after the German Grand Prix, Cal was really really irked that he didn't win that race. He thought that that was definitely his race there for the taking. He was sat in that front group before everyone started pitting, thinking I'm just weighing these guys up and then I'm going to you know check out and then when he realized that Marquez had actually had pitted you know quite a bit before them and, and kind of stole the march on them by pitting for slicks you know he he, he thought that that was his race and that should have been uh, that should have been his first win so it's good that he's uh, he's been able to to put that to put that right okay so moving on to the smaller classes then um we have been waxing lyrical about Johan Zarco for a long time so it feels only right that uh that he gave us a performance like like what he put in on Sunday to remind us that he is slightly human and that there may yet be a championship fight. Although, since the race on Sunday, we've had some very uh, important news which could affect the outcome of the championship, David. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, once again, uh, another training accident. Uh, uh, Alex Rins has fallen off, broken his collarbone, and I think has already had surgery to uh, stick a plate on it. Um, but it's hardly ideal preparation for uh, Silverstone, which is a very physically demanding circuit because it's just so long and so fast. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Rins got a lot of points back on um, um 
uh, on Zarko at the uh, at the weekend, and uh, now it looks like he will have to struggle again to well, it, certainly if the weather, d- depending on the weather, but he could be struggling again to actually make a dent on uh, uh, on Zarko's championship. Yeah, it seemed like if there was one person that got lucky on Sunday, uh, it was definitely Alex Rins because he was he was having a bit of a nightmare weekend, wasn't he? He was struggling. I think he qualified on the third row, but his pace in all free practice never suggested that he was going to be challenging really for the podium. Um, it was Sam Lowe's and Johan Zarko that were kind of making the headway. Yeah, um, it, it was indeed. I mean, it, it really looked like that it was going to be uh, Lowe's versus, um, uh, it was going to be Lowe's versus Zarko. You know, Zarko doesn't turn up, but uh, but Rins all of a sudden does. Um, Rins is now 19 points behind Zarko, which... Um, Previously, after Austria, he was thirty-four points. So that's that. that, that that's a serious difference. Um, a nineteen-point championship is a very, very different proposition to a uh, to a thirty-four-point uh, uh, championship. Um, Sam Lowe's also got a lot of points back, but um, uh, finishing behind Rince, it wasn't really what he needed. But he need he really, really needed to finish a race and get some solid points. Yeah, and speaking to him after the race. It was clear that um, you know he had some some wet weather demons uh, that he that he needed to banish. Um, he had obviously been you know he's a fast rider in the wet. There's no doubt about that. But he's had some issues you know just finishing races before maybe crashing out like in Saxon Ring um, this year, Silverstone last year. He just you know, he didn't quite uh, you know setting didn't quite come his way. Um, you know enough for him to push for you know a podium place. Um, but you kind of got the impression here, almost like Lorenzo, we were talking earlier, like here, you know, Lowe's kind of got a certain monkey off his back in, in wet conditions. And he said he was feeling now that, you know, going to Silverstone, he'll be absolutely sorted wet or dry. Yeah. I mean, that kind of confidence is very, very, is, is well, it, it's crucial for any kind of a, a for all riders. Um, but especially, what was it, two or three DNFs uh, 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 on the... Two. Yeah, two DNFs on the bounce. It's absolutely crucial that you actually get some points and to get a podium is uh, exactly what you need to start to to, to, to start to build um, yeah. but I think that the, for me what was the, the well one of the more Im- impressive uh, results of that was the way that Jonas Volga managed to just control the race almost uh, it never looked like he was getting away um, but he he never really looked uh, well he always looked like like he had the situation under control and um, uh, and and you know took it home but uh, Folger's an interesting racer because you never really know what you're going to get with him you'll either you know he can win races or he can finish 14th yeah exactly yeah I feel I feel slightly bad that we kind of went into this segment for, for and you know it didn't speak to you know didn't give uh, Jonas any sort of mention for quite a bit of it but yeah he was he was fantastic on on Sunday and I agree with you completely he seems to be a guy that that can can learn pick things up very quickly we saw when he first came into one two five he was immediately competitive but then you know he had a few years out in the wilderness and it was almost the same in Moto two he came in last year uh, I think it was his first year no or no maybe two years no ago, sorry I think. sorry sorry it was two years ago but he was immediately quite fast and then he picked up one or two race wins last year and you know you kind of thought maybe this is year that you can build on that to, to put a championship uh, challenge in but really hasn't been uh, hasn't been happening for him so much and um, but he was fantastic in the wet he was uh, he was very strong and I remember when he got to the, the front started building up a bit of a lead he started posting fastest laps and I was thinking this could be a time where he just you know falls out we saw Brad Binder in the earlier race. We'll come on to that later. But, um, you know, it's not an easy thing to lead in the wet. Uh, you're the first one to come into these conditions. And, you know, to to his credit, he managed to, 
to keep it steady and to, to bring it home. Yeah, I, I, always reminds me of um, uh, Seti Gibbonow at, um, at Estoril when he was leading a, uh, a MotoGP race. He looked to be... 2005. 2005. Yeah, Seti Gibbonow, 2005. Leading at Estoril, um, I think he took the lead. Uh, uh, took the lead from Rossi, perhaps? I can't remember. I can't remember who he took the lead from. Um, looked like he was he was getting away. Looked like he was going to get, uh, get away for the win. Um, but then he came to the one corner which was wet and which um, uh, nobody had ridden at yet and um, was, you know, straight on his face and, um, uh, and into the gravel, which is which is always the risk. I mean, I think I, I think the two of us were sitting there going, you know, what lap does Jonas Volger crash on? But it turned out to be no, no, <laughs> no lap at all because he, he handled it absolutely superbly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was interesting because, I mean, he had that issue in Qatar. He was, you know, that, that race was his. After everyone jumped the start and had the, the ride-through penalties, Folger was way out in front and he still contrived to, to throw it away. And it was quite interesting speaking to uh, to Reese Edwards, who is Jonas' manager this year. Um, he was saying, I remember after the race in Jerez, where I think Jonas finished second to, to Sam Lowe's, and he said the whole team that morning were just saying, Jonas, you might not be able to win this race today because Sam is so fast, but please just try and just bring it home. You know, doesn't matter if you don't win, just bring it home because you've got the pace for a good podium finish and that's enough. And I think that's something that, um, that maybe he doesn't always, yeah, maybe he doesn't always, uh, you know, think in this way. You know, he's a bit over-eager at times. Um, I think that's one of the things especially with younger races is is the um ability to concentrate to keep that level of focus up um uh, every single race and also the patience to understand what your position is in a race and just to actually uh, keep keep going at it and i think that's that's been Johan Sarko's advantage for most of this race really or for most yeah. of this most of this season up until uh, up until this weekend yeah and speaking about Sarko, I mean, um, uh, you know, I think it was just a case of he didn't have a good feeling in the wet. Um, he had a few moments of warm-up. He wasn't really fast. And he went into the race with his confidence quite low, not expecting to do much. Is this a temporary blip on on Sarko's uh, championship scorecard? I think so. I think it's only, I think it's only temporary. Um, I think also he has the maturity to understand that um, even when it's wet you can't afford to do this every single race you have to you have to take the points which were there but then again he didn't throw it away he didn't try and push uh, he stayed calm um, he got a fairly dismal result but he still scored points he limited the damage um, helped by Jonas Folger of, uh, uh, of course um, and, he, and he still is the champion absolutely uh, uh, Scott what was Moto2 race like for you? um it was a challenge because I did not have a scooter on that, and I relied on the shuttles. And, and Brno is and a really, really big track. It is, if there is one track, well, uh, I suppose Brno and Silverstone are the two tracks where you would really desperately want a, sh- a, a scooter to get around. Yes, now that Indy is no longer on the schedule, that's right. Those are the top two. Um, Silverstone's actually a little bit easier because it's flat, you know, there's so much elevation change at Brno that if you're walking, you're really going to get a good workout. I did manage to set a personal uh, record for how fast I've gone on a service road, though. One of the one of the shuttle drivers got up almost 60 miles an hour on the service road between turns three and four. <laughs> as I, I put this in one of my Patreon posts, with, as you drive 60 miles an hour on a smooth freeway it's no big deal but on a narrow bumpy service road 
uh, with a guy who really wants his next cigarette. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I can imagine. I was just going to say that um, uh, for for gentlemen of our age, um, Scott, the Bruno is very good because it does provide you with a very good workout. <laughs> yeah, it's hilly. It's hilly. hillier than it looks on TV for sure. Yeah, and then Moto Three um, was also a a chance to get a bit teary-eyed if you were uh, in any way patriotic and in, in healing from the, the British Isles because uh, John McPhee uh, stormed to his first ever Grand Prix victory. Um, you know, an, an occasion that was it was made almost all the sweeter by the fact that he's had to endure some very difficult things this year uh, in that uh, Saxoprint uh, Peugeot squad. Yeah, exactly. If you wanted a, to hear a tale of woe, then you would definitely want to listen to um, uh, the Saxoprint RTGP um, uh, Peugeot um, uh, story. They've uh, let's see one of their one of the owners i think it, one of the owners has been um relieved of his position um there's been financial disputes over who owns it they've had a new team owner they've had uh suppliers complaining that they haven't been paid which was why the former team owner team owner got kicked out anyway um it was it, it's just been a complete disaster they've had problems with the mahindra gearbox which was extremely difficult to manage in the first part of the in the first part of the season because it was just so unpredictable um so for it to all finally come together and get a win was it, it was really pleasing and again if there is one rider that you would really um that, that you would really love to see win a race it's john mcphee because he's um he's a, a, a lovely polite um charming young man very quiet very unassuming very modest very very dedicated and motivated um but he doesn't you know doesn't he doesn't blow his own trumpet he doesn't um uh, scream about how cool he is and all the rest of it he just gets gets on and does his job and he has posted some really really impressive results in the past but just never really had the opportunity never been in the right team never had the right ride um so to actually get a win that makes a huge difference for him i think we it was at the end of uh 2014 when we had that ridiculously talented Moto3 grid with Miller and Alex Marquez, Rins, Fanati, you know, when Fanati was kind of, you know, looking like he was going to be the next big thing as well. Uh, you know, McPhee towards the end of that season was, you know, challenged for podiums regularly. And you kind of thought that perhaps last year you could have gone on and picked, you know, uh, picked up from there. Just didn't really happen. And and then, you know, obviously all the things that you mentioned, David, also the, the team changing the Mahindra machinery, you know, it was fair to say in the first half of the season that bike wasn't, uh, wasn't competitive, um, but they've definitely received some parts. Um, the, the new gearbox, I think, the new gearbox the new, has, yeah. has made a massive difference because it's it's basically just it's reliable. It works. Um, you know exactly what's going to happen. It's not necessarily adding you know sort of three tenths a lap, but it is uh, it is adding maybe five ten seconds a race because uh, you know that uh, every time you go uh, you go to change gear it's going to go into the in, into the right gear it's going to stay there it's not going to jump out it's not going to lock up it's just going to work so you don't have to worry about it. you don't have to finger the clutch yeah you just you just race yeah just for your peace of mind more than anything really yeah yeah for sure um so all those things have helped and you know i've 
gone down to you know speak to John after some races where things haven't gone well and things maybe haven't been working out that well in the garage, and he's always remained calm and professional. And I think you know it's a it's a credit to him that he's been able to do that. Um, and you know he, he was just he was sensational. I mean he was eleventh in um, in qualifying, uh, and then was very fast in the morning warm up. And you just had a feeling that this was going to be uh, this was going to be his race. Him and Brad Binder seemed to be the only guys that were forging ahead at one point and it, it all went a bit wrong for for the championship leader what basically one of his first mistakes uh aston i guess you could say uh, was probably his first big mistake of the year but he managed to, to to stay on that in that instance and salvage some points but this was a this was an even bigger one yeah i mean he, and he was brutal, brutally honest about it he, he put it all down to himself i mean he, he, his exact words were i fucked up um which Again, a very polite, well-spoken young man. Not you doesn't usually uh, use that sort of language. He's very apologetic about the team. He said the team gave him just an absolutely fantastic bike. Um, he had a fantastic feeling with the bike. He didn't. Uh, he, he basically said there was. He couldn't feel anything wrong with the. He, he, the bike felt fantastic all the way uh, up to the point where he crashed. Um, he didn't feel any movement. There was no moments or anything at all. Uh, and then suddenly. The uh, the front just went, and he thinks it was because he got into he he just ran a little bit too close to the edge of the track, and there was a um uh, uh, a puddle. There'd been some water collected there, and it just sort of wiped him out. Um, entirely his own mistake. Um, uh, also, I think it, it it speaks well of him that he actually just holds his hands up and says that was me. I messed up, and uh, we're we're not going to do it again. Um, one more thing. One thing that I really like to say about uh, John McPhee. Um, it's also a credit to the Racing Steps Foundation, uh, which I think is it's really important. Racing Steps Foundation do a lot of work trying to uh, support young, um, especially Scottish, but also British riders um, uh, coming up through uh, junior classes. They help them in the Spanish Championship. They help them in uh, various other uh, other classes, trying to bring them up to uh, uh, bring them up to Grand Prix. So it was really really satisfying. For the racing to, to see the Racing Steps Foundation get um, the reward that they've that they've been chasing, and a lot of their money is put into car racing. And I think having a a win on two wheels is going to make a big difference for them as well. Scott, anything um, anything you'd like to add about Moto Three? No, you guys said everything I was going to say, and a couple <laughs> extra things too. <laughs> no worries. Just that I was really disappointed when. Uh, you know, I'm also rooting for John McPhee to do well. Everything you said about him, I agree with. But as you were describing him, I was thinking you could just as easily be talking about Brad Binder, um, you know, who's just as nice and well-mannered and pleasant to talk to for a super fast motorcycle racer, especially. Um, and I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm really, really hoping that he wins this uh Motor Three Championship. I think also what's what's interesting is that um, again, speaking of of lucky, um, Brad Binder has been lucky again. I mean, he's absolutely earned everything he's done. But every time uh, he has a bad race, his rivals seem to have uh, worse races. Uh, obviously, Fanati 
was sacked for basically <laughs> he had a pretty bad yeah. race. <laughs> <laughs> That's more of a bad season, the bad race. Yeah, I mean, Fanasi being sacked that helps. Uh, but Navarro finished, I think, tenth um, uh, on um, on on at uh, Bruno, which you know. So yeah, despite the fact that Bender manages to crash, Navarro only managed to pick up six points. Um, yeah, and by, by now, crashed out as well, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yes, yeah, 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 yeah and Bastianini finishes fourth uh, a long way uh, a long way behind again Bastianini is is battling with uh, Jorge Martin and Digia uh, uh, Fabio Fabio Di Gianantonio and um, uh, it, he manages to lose out so again all of these things come uh, are coming together to uh, for Binder and you really feel I mean you feel that this is um, that this is Binder's year because um, he just everything comes uh, comes together, and he's really. Also, I spoke to him. Uh, uh, I spoke to him after qualifying, and he was he was sort of like saying, "Was he worried about you know what was his motivation with such a big championship lead?" And he says, "You know, I don't even think about the championship lead. All I'm thinking about is ra- is doing as well as possible in the next race, trying to win races, uh, because you have to stay motivated. Because as soon as you start thinking about." worrying about your future or worrying about the championship or, or whatever it's really easy to lose focus make mistakes and start throwing away a lot of points at which points um you really are in trouble absolutely, absolutely. Uh, danny can't <laughs> but but I think you know it's funny that you say this, Scott. Um, you know the instance with Danny Kent last year. I know it was after Silverstone that he won his home GP, and I think Bastianini crashed out at that moment. And you thought like, oh well, that's it. It's definitely the championship's definitely over now. Um, but you know there was Miguel Oliveira last year. You know you would say is you know probably around equal kind of level rider as as Kent. You know he's a, a real really excellent rider. This year I'm just not sure whether you know any of those rivals will be able to able to put together a second half of the year um, as Oliveira did in, in 2015 um, and you know I think that's that's well, obviously Binder's riding really well and he's the fastest guy out there at the moment but I think also I can't see the Navarros the Bastianinis um, the Banyayas obviously he's on the Mahindra so that makes it a little bit uh, more difficult for him but you know I don't see any of those guys really you know putting together a stellar you know win five out of the last six races kind of run yeah, I mean, I think the only the only rider capable of, well, let's see. I think the problem is that that um, Navarro has the temperaments to do it, and uh, Bastianini has the uh, talents, the raw talents to do it. Whereas uh, Oliveira last year, Oliveira had both. He had the temperament to stay calm and just focus on winning races, but he also had the talent to go out and win races. Uh, Navarro is exceptionally talented um but he um sometimes he can just miss that tiny that that last tiny little bit which is the difference between you know winning a lot and um uh, and, and coming second a lot um i think also i mean bastianini is incredibly talented but uh, he it's another one of those young italian riders who sort of seem to lose focus and go a bit crazy yeah, uh, he's still he's still far from the finished article isn't he Bastianini? no 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 exactly no exactly yeah. i mean once he's finally done he's going to be absolutely amazing um yeah. up until that point he's going to be amazing sometimes um and being amazing sometimes isn't going to win you a championship but uh, uh i definitely think there's a good chance that bastianini will close to uh, close a lot of the champion uh, close 
a lot of or you know a big chunk of the gap but i don't think he has the temperament to hold it together all the way to the end so well so basically you guys are telling me just to relax that bender's going to win everything's going to be fine um uh, i well i wouldn't put more than about six pence on that but uh yeah basically as long as, long as your stakes are sort of no more than about than than the cost of a pint i think that's exactly what we're saying <laughs> okay i feel much better thank you <laughs> and, and, and if he doesn't then i owe you a pint <laughs> which is a lot which is a lot in david's currency exactly. stock, so yeah. <laughs> so you better be thankful for that point if it comes to your way at the end of the year uh, just, well that's a win-win yeah. <laughs> either bender wins or i get a pint from david i didn't I, specify I, a I pint of get. what though did i <laughs> <laughs> pint of oil yeah um so just just finally guys to finish off i mean um both of you guys made a kind of a, a trip of the of the two back-to-back uh, European races, uh, Austria first, and then you travelled up to the Czech Republic. Um, in terms of of what you did, um, first of all, did you enjoy the trip? And and you know, would you recommend uh, this to to potential listeners if they were thinking about uh, you know doing a big holiday in Central Europe, uh, Central Eastern Europe? Uh, in 2016, would you would you recommend it? Was there anything you would recommend for them to do? Uh, yeah, I'd recommend it. I really enjoyed going to Austria for the first time. As we spoke about last time, the track's fantastic place to be. Beautiful, scenic, um, pleasant to be there, even if there weren't a racetrack and a racing to watch. Um, so I really like that. And, you know, as I think is commonly accepted in the MotoGP public, the... Uh, Czech Grand Prix at Brno is one of the most popular ones of the year. Um, not only is it a fantastic circuit to go to, but the um, going into Brno afterwards is quite enjoyable. Um, so I think the back-to-back, if you're going to try to get two races in, uh, this is a good good option to do that. Yeah, I mean, we went down on the motorcycle. I I, um, uh, I went down with my wife on our motorcycle. Um, so anytime you get to ride for well three nearly the best best part of three and a half thousand kilometers on a motorcycle is a is a good time um, except in Austria because it rains in Austria and in fact um, some Italian uh, I remember I think a couple of years ago a couple of years ago I went down to Mugello um, on the bike from from my home in Holland um, which is a, a, a bit of a trek and I got absolutely soaked coming through Austria uh, at some point I ended up in a tunnel the, the route i'd set out you know um included another mountain pass but there was a, a, a sort of like a 30 kilometer tunnel or something which i was glad to take because it meant i actually get to to dry out a little bit and warm up um and i spoke to an italian uh, or to a, an italian journalist friend of mine and he says yeah that always happens to me when i go to Bordeaux. it always rains in it always rains in austria when you're riding a motorcycle um that's exactly what happened but uh, apart from that roads were fantastic um i think in terms of back to back um it's a really interesting race because also because of the things when i think about races i don't just think about i mean motorcycle racing racing is awesome but there is more in the world than just motorcycle racing um if you are trying to sell uh, a visit to two races to your um uh, partner 
um, uh, uh, wife, husband, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, whatever, there who may or may not be as enthusiastic about motorcycle racing as you are. I think um, this is a the, this back to back is a fantastic. Uh, it, it's a really really easy sell. I mean, we spent a couple of days in Vienna uh, between. Um, in fact, the whole, yes, we all of us spent a couple of days in in Vienna between uh, Austria and um, Brno. That was a fantastic. It's a fantastic city. Um, stunningly beautiful. Really, really interesting. Lots and lots of history. Um, then the day after, or well, the day after the test uh, on Tuesday, we went up to uh, we went up to Prague. It was my first time in Prague. Again. Uh, astonishing city, astonishingly beautiful, um, ram-packed with tourists, but that's uh, uh, a par for the course um, in 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 sort of August, I suppose. Um, ram-packed with tourists, one of them being me, obviously. Uh, it was, but uh, I mean, it, it made a really, really good. It made it really, really interesting. It made for a really, really. Um, it was a good combination of culture, motorcycle racing, scenery, everything. Uh, plus it was cheap and we, we ate well, didn't, uh, 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 well, we ate well in Prague, didn't we, Neil? We did. We ate well in Prague and Vienna as well. Yes. I had a schnit, a schnitzel the size of both my palms <laughs> of hand, both palms of my hand. If you combine those together, my schnitzel was even bigger than, than that. That's uh, right. Un- yeah, un- yeah, it was, uh, I thought it was a great trip. Uh, yeah. Unlike Donald's Trump, <laughs> Neil Morrison actually has massive hands. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and a, and, a, and, a, and a monster schnitzel. Sadly, those are the only two ways we differ. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I'm not stinking rich. Yeah, uh, but anyway, uh, I digress. But yeah, I thought it was. I mean, it's it's a wonderful part of the world. Austria, we spoke about it last last week. Is you know the the backdrop of the of the track there is is great. Vienna is a cool city, and I did more or less the same trip as you, Dave, except um, I was scrounging lifts off people and taking trains. Um, but uh, but yeah, if you don't have a bike, could I just recommend the train ride from Brno up to Prague? It's just it's uh, really quite beautiful, and um, yeah, you're on this kind of old Eastern European train. It's very rickety, and you know it gives the impression that it's going to fall off the rails at any time. But it's it's just a wonderful journey. Um, and yeah, as you say, two wonderful cities, Prague and Brno, as well. This was the first year i really got to experience um downtown bruno and it's uh it's it's splendid superb yeah so yeah, yeah definitely, I mean, the, definitely again one of the things and my obviously my wife came with me and uh i mean she basically comes on uh either thursday or friday or, and then on the sunday because as far as Roche is concerned, the only thing that counts is the race. The rest is all she doesn't quite understand what all what all the what all the nonsense is about. They, they should just turn up, qualify Sunday morning, race on Sunday. As far as she's concerned, and it's hard to uh, uh, hard to argue with that. That would it would be it would certainly make for some fantastic racing. But she spent a lot of time in Brno, and she was really impressed by the by the by the town. I've walked around there a few times, having stayed actually in the town, but never spent more than maybe a couple of hours. But it's it is it's a really really attractive. Uh, little town it's also a student town so it's very very lively lots of cheap places to eat and very very good places to eat um there's a local brewery just as there is in almost everywhere 
in uh, in Prague um, and random uh, random unrelated fact we as we were riding as we were leaving Prague and riding out towards Germany uh, uh, to ride back home we rode past uh, lots and lots of hop fields which um, uh, fields full of hop which were very interesting first time I've ever uh, ever seen it so um, there, there was me thinking Scott Jones should be here. He would appreciate this because that's his, this is some of where his beer is being made from. Big fan yeah, of bit, hops. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was um, uh, no totally as much as skips it. or skips and jumps as well. Are you big fans of those? <laughs> <laughs> Not as much. Big hopper. But, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, good definitely worth it okay fantastic well I think that pretty much brings us to the end of our, of our discussion about uh, about the Grand Prix in Brno uh, David I would like to say thank you very much firstly for for changing out of your dundle because that was something <laughs> I'll never forget that experience last week but also thank you for your time and for your company and your sage wisdom as always and thank you as well Scott also for joining us it was been a pleasure indeed uh, in terms of the show I want to make sure that you guys are following us on Twitter that is at Paddock Pass Pod uh, I want to make sure that you're following us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And also, if you're listening to us via iTunes, please leave a review because it helps other people find us, other potential listeners to find our show. So thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your company. We'll see you next time. That was professional, Neil. Woof. Yeah, you're good at that, Neil. <laughs> He's Mr. Smooth. He's been, he's been practicing on with ladies. He's been using it to pick ladies up in bars. Oh, they don't have a chance. Him and his him and his big schnitzel. He starts talking about his schnitzel in that in that professional manner. Guadalupe. 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 Hey.